Thank you, Sujith, for reading from God's Word for us. Um, and also thank you for those who help in making the, uh, the sermon notes, right? Uh, there are printouts. A lot of you would have received it. If uh, any of you still want to have the sermon notes, which you can use to follow through together with the sermon, then please raise your hands and someone will get it for you if there are any left. No, there aren't. Uh, but there are PDF versions. Somebody can just forward it to those who raise their hands. Um, so in the zoos in America, there, is, there are people who uh, you know, have the responsibility of going and getting animals, exotic animals. And uh, uh, they would go to Africa and they'll bring different, catch different animals, trap different animals. But one of the animals that they would find it the hardest to catch is this small, very agile uh, animal uh, called a ring-tailed monkey. They find that very difficult to catch. But there are localites there who find it very easy. So localites called Zulus, they find it very easy to catch this monkey and that is because they know a certain habit of this monkey. What they do is, it's not a very elaborate trap, it's very simple. There is a particular melon which grows in a vine which this monkey likes a lot. Not the melon, but the monkey likes the seeds inside the melon a lot. So the Zulus, they cut a small hole in the melon which is just right enough for the monkey's hand to go inside. And when they do that, the monkeys go there, put their hand inside, collect as many melon seeds as they can, and then they are not able to get their hand out till they let go of the seeds, which the monkey doesn't. The monkey doesn't want to let go of the seeds in the hand and it gets stuck and it will go wild with its hand inside the melon. By the time, uh, the ones who have laid the trap will go and catch the monkey. Temptations, things that look good and easy on the outside, that look very natural and normal on the outside. But once we are stuck there, it becomes so difficult for us to come out of it. It becomes so difficult for us to let go. And today in this passage, we're going to look at, um, through our example, through the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, how He faced temptations and how therefore we can learn as well to face temptations in our life. But before we get to the passage itself, a quick background as to why this is something that the Lord Jesus Christ actually had to face, right? So in this book that we are studying, the book of Luke, Dr. Luke is writing in a two-book series to his friend Theophilus, noble Theophilus. He's writing this book to help Theophilus understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah, right? And to also help him understand the historicity of the faith. And between Luke and Acts, he helps him understand not just the life of Jesus, but also the life of the church that comes afterwards, the life of his disciples. And that's why the series is titled The Acts of Christ, which is what we are studying now in Luke, and then of the apostles, which we will study later whenever we get there next year in the book of Acts. And as he does this, in the first three chapters that we studied, if we zoom out a bit, what we get to understand is that Luke is endeavoring to prove beyond any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. So Luke is laying out the messianic credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this in four ways. The first is, through the testimony of angels. So, first we see angel Gabriel who comes and speaks to Zacharias, right? And in that prophecy, we see that angel Gabriel clearly says that the child that will be born to Zacharias, which is John the Baptist, is actually a forerunner of the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come. And then angel Gabriel goes to Mary and to Joseph as well. And even in the prophecy that he tells the two of them, we see this testimony that the one who is to come is the Son of God. We later see angels uh, as a group addressing shepherds in the field. And there again, in various words, they affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. Today for you 
in the city of David is born the Savior, Christ the Lord, right? So they affirm to them that Jesus, the coming one, is the promised Savior. After the testimony of angels, we also see the testimony of people. We see first Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, right? Both speaking about Zechariah in uh, his song, the Benedictus. He speaks about how um, now the Redeemer has come, a horn of salvation from the house of David. And then we see uh, his wife, Elizabeth, speak to Mary and address Mary as the mother of my Lord. Again, testimonies from these two godly people that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Then we see Joseph and Mary as well. They also testify not through their words, but we see them testifying through their actions, through their obedience. Whatever the uh, angel had promised, they believed that that was true. And therefore, through their lives, they testified by following whatever. Because if they had not believed all of that, they would not have followed. Joseph would have left Mary if he did not believe that the one who is coming through Mary's womb is actually the Son of God. Right? He would have doubted Mary. And, uh, uh, but we see that Joseph and Mary both through their actions show that they believed and they are testifying. Uh, we also see in the temple, Simeon and then later Anna, two godly people there also testifying that this child is the son of God. He is the Messiah. Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation as he holds that baby. And then Anna, she goes around testifying to, it says there, to all those who were waiting who was the Jewish community waiting for? They were waiting for the Messiah. And Anna goes and testifies to all of them. And we can assume that she would have testified that I have seen, I have seen the Messiah. He has come. And then finally we see the testimony of John the Baptist in this group of testimony of people. We see the testimony of John the Baptist who was preaching about the coming Messiah who said that I, am, I have gone ahead and I am preparing a way. And we are saying there is somebody who is coming who is greater. And he is the one who you should follow. He is the one who you should worship. And when people asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, not me. There is somebody else who is coming after me. And then finally, when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, he points towards him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, all these godly people, they testify that Jesus is the Messiah. And then finally, we also see, thirdly, we see the testimony of the triune God. God the Father, after the baptism uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we studied uh, last Sunday, God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, we also studied that that was a private moment between the triune God. But still it's recorded here so that it's a testimony for all of us that God the Father attested uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as his son, as the Messiah. And then we see the Holy Spirit descend again as a validation, as a divine stamp to signify the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is worthy. How do we know that? Because later on, John the Baptist, in, in, the, uh, in the Gospel of John we study, he says, I would not have been able to identify who is the Messiah till I saw, because I was told that the person on whom the Holy Spirit descends is the Messiah. So for even John the Baptist, that was a signal, right? The testimony of the Holy Spirit descending uh, on the Lord Jesus Christ in the form of a dove. And we see the third, uh, 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 that even the Lord Jesus Christ testified about himself. We studied when he was 12 years old, he goes into the temple and when his parents come to him seeking for him, the Lord Jesus says, do you not know that I have to do my father's business, right? He's able to, and, and Raven brother had spoken to us from that passage saying that that statement was showing that Jesus was fully aware of his identity and his purpose, right? Of why he came. He was the Messiah. So we see the testimony of angels, the testimony of people, the testimony of triune God and what we saw last Sunday, also the testimony of genealogy. The Jewish people, because of all that God had promised in the Old Testament, knew that the Messiah had to come from the line of Abraham and David. Because God had promised Abraham that through you I will bless the nations, not just the Jewish community, I will bless the nations that was still to be fulfilled. So they were waiting for a Messiah from the line of Abraham. They also knew that David had been promised that his seed would reign for 
ever. Again, that had to be the Messiah. So, so they knew very clearly and they were waiting. Godly Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah from the line of Abraham and David. So we see that in the testimony of genealogy that Jesus was from the line of both Abraham as well as David. Now, all of these credentials, they prove, right? And, and Luke is going on to explain that this shows that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if Jesus had to be just a political Messiah, the kind that the Jewish people of that time, Israel of that time was waiting for, these credentials would have been enough. But we know that Jesus did not come as a political Messiah. Jesus came as a savior of souls to save people from their sins. That is what Jesus proclaimed about himself. And for that, if Jesus had to be the savior of souls, he had to conquer sin and death. And if he could not conquer sin and death himself, how could he save others from their sin? So there is one credential that was left, which is the credential of being a victor over sin and Satan. And that's the credential that we see now. Just think about it logically. Otherwise, immediately after being anointed by God the Father and attested by the Holy Spirit, Jesus should have launched into his ministry. Right? He would have started off immediately. What a perfect timing, you know, for him to just start off. Uh, all this has happened. Right? Apostle John has seen that. Apostle John, uh, sorry, John the Baptist has then proclaimed that this is the Lamb of God. Perfect timing for Jesus to have started his ministry. But he did not. He withdrew away into the wilderness. And it says that the Spirit of God took him there to be tempted. So this was a very, very important uh, parenthesis. It was a very important mid-event uh, that had to happen to be able to establish the credential of Jesus as the Messiah of our souls, not just a political Messiah. Can Jesus conquer the devil? Can Jesus conquer sin? And the answer we find in this passage is in emphatic, yes, he can. Right? So we see three temptations recorded here. But before we get into those three temptations and we try to study those, in an overview, when we see there are some observations that pop out, right? And even as you would have read it, these would have come, uh, you know, to your eyes and to your mind. The first is the humanity of Jesus, right? We see different things there which show that Jesus is in human form. We see that, um, uh, that um, firstly, you know, just before this passage, Luke is talking about a genealogy, right? That itself is speaking about Jesus as a human. And then we see in verse 2 that Jesus was hungry, right? Not just here. We see uh, the, the, the gospel writers again and again pepper this, right? Again and again show these different things about Je Jesus being tired, Jesus being thirsty, Jesus being hungry, human feelings and, and human needs, and then we see that the devil had access to tempt him. In his godly form, in his glory, the devil can't come before God unless God summons him. Right? We see that in Job. God calls him and that's when the devil is able to come. Otherwise, devil has no access. Devil has been sent away. Devil has no access. But in his bodily form, the Lord Jesus Christ had, had constrained himself and he had made himself vulnerable. He made himself uh, of, of no, no reputation, we read in Philippians. And therefore, uh, the devil had access to be able to uh, tempt him. The devil knew that this is the promised seed of the woman who will eventually has been promised to crush him. To crush Satan, right? And the devil will do everything in his might. And we see not just now, but throughout the life of Jesus, the devil is trying to do everything in his might to crush the seed, right? To, to, to do just the opposite. Um, and, and we see that also the angels are restraining themselves. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the account that Matthew puts together in Matthew chapter 4 of the same incident, Towards the end, the angels come and minister. Till then, it's almost as if the angels of heaven and the armies are restraining themselves uh, to protect the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Because Jesus in human form, in fact, Jesus uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says that 12 
legions of angels are waiting at my back. If I were to only ask the father, he will unleash them right now. And if you do a little bit of mathematics, uh, 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 you know, basis what we would have studied in the Old Testament about the power of every angel, 12 legions of angels would have completely annihilated the entire living world at that time. So that is the kind of power that was at his disposal. But he had constrained himself, veiled himself in human bodily form. And therefore we see the humanity of Jesus in all of these aspects. At the same time, we see the divinity of Jesus as well. Right? We see that he was able to stay without food for 40 days. And I uh, reached out to um, my favorite doctor in CBF and I checked with him um, whether this actually is something that humans can do. And he told me that um, the general uh, you know, majority of doctors and medical uh, people, their understanding is 333. Three minutes uh, is the max. Actually, you shouldn't try that. So, so let me put it the other way around. Um, a human can't survive more than three minutes uh, or without air, uh, without uh, and and three days without water, and uh, th- uh, three weeks without food. Right, so three weeks without food, twenty-one days, and Jesus uh, here is staying without food for forty days. So. Um, Definitely, uh, and not just here, even in other places, we see aspects of, uh, of what a human cannot do that Jesus is able to do. And as we read through and study the, the Gospel of Luke, we'll see many of those, right? Jesus was able to walk on water. Uh, again, you know, things that humans aren't able to do, Jesus was able to do. Even beyond the miracles that he did for others, there were things that even in his bodily form, he was able to do which, which a human can't. We also see that the devil addressed Jesus as the son of God. And not just here. Everywhere, whenever the devil or demons are addressing Jesus, they address him as the son of God. Demons knew that Jesus is divine. We also see that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. Right? It says there, Uh, In verse 2, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So this was just a culmination of that entire period of temptation for 40 days. In fact, not just here, but even later on. And he would have been tempted even when he was uh, was small and when he was growing up. And and during those 30 years and even the later three three and a half years of his uh, remaining life, Jesus was tempted in various ways. And that's why the passage that we read during... Uh, worship, right, which Sujay read for us, that he was, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that he was tempted in every way. Tempted in every way. And that's why he's able to uh, be, uh, he's able to empathize with us, yet without sin. So that sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ shines through, not just here in this passage, but throughout the Bible, right, throughout the Gospels. It shows the divinity of Jesus, because Other than God, no one is sinless. We also see that the Lord Jesus Christ, he was intentionally confronting Satan. He enters into conflict with Satan, prompted by the Holy Spirit. In verse 1, he was led by the Spirit into the desert. And Matthew completes that and says, to be tempted. So it was not by accident that Jesus ended up there, not because of some wrong choice that he made or some compromise that he made, right? That he was in this sudden situation where he became vulnerable to Satan. It was also not as if Satan came at him. Satan did come at him and we see many of those instances, uh, you know, in the rest of uh, the gospel. But in this particular instant, it was he going at Satan, right? So it's almost he coming after Satan and the Holy Spirit leads him towards that. Now for Satan, he was intending this to uh, destroy Jesus as Messiah. But from God's viewpoint, God uses this to validate Jesus as the Messiah. And finally, we see that this is uh, the messianic credential of Jesus before he starts the ministry, right? Like I was saying that Jesus could have launched into ministry immediately after his anointing and immediately after the declaration, but he uh, goes and, and he is tempted. Um, after 40 days of this struggle that we read about in verse 1 and 2, Jesus, who is fully man, right, is feeling hungry 
and and he would have been exhausted physically he is alone and and satan in that point senses a new vulnerability of jesus right uh, when when he is fully feeling his mortality and uh, and jesus uh, and satan uh, moves in to uh, in a way you know he moves in for the kill he is uh, he he has got these uh, three final temptations that he places before the lord jesus christ which on the outside seem very simple uh, but as we study them we'll realize that uh, they go into the, uh, the 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 basics of uh, of what uh, one's relationship with god ought to be like right so so he he goes to the root of a heart's intent uh, through these temptations so we'll uh, in a certain structure quickly look at uh the three right we'll try to see what is this temptation on the outside on the surface level what does it look like and then we'll go and see that however on a deeper level what is this temptation really right what is the heart issue that the temptation is uh is uh, is is uh, attacking and then we'll see what was jesus's response and therefore what can we learn from each of these right so the first temptation is one on the outside seems of things right of provision of stuff of material needs right it's one of just fulfilling a basic need that of hunger verse 3 and 4 of chapter 4 uh, of luke the devil said to him if or or a better translation since you are the son of god tell this stone to become bread jesus answered it is written man does not live on bread alone so while on the outside it seems to be just that of a fulfilling a basic need that of hunger but on the at a deeper level it was much more right the real temptation is not just one of satiating hunger that would have been perfectly fine jesus has been fasting for 40 days what is wrong with eating something at the end of that fast it's also and and jesus um had created uh food out of nothing he does that later on as well so he was also perfectly uh in his place to be able to do that miracle and create food out of nothing like he did later on he did that for uh the disciples when he made fish for them he did that uh, for the 5000 when he fed them with bread and fish so could jesus have done it he could have done it right but it like i said it goes deeper and we get to know that from jesus's answer it is really something about doubting god's goodness doubting god's love and his care and his provision in a sense what satan without saying too many words is telling jesus is maybe god doesn't care about you to have if he would have he would have provided for you you are here you are in this desert you are fasting and and uh you don't have uh what you need your basic needs is something that god is not meeting and that's exactly the same formula that satan had used with eve as well what 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 satan was telling eve in the garden is that there is a garden which is full of trees and full of fruit and god doesn't want you to have it god doesn't have your best interest in mind right if you eat this you will become better but god doesn't want that it was to question god's love and god's care and god's provision so at a deeper level it is really about uh consciously rebelling taking things into one ho- one's own hands doing things in one's own method in one's own way on the outside it is a very simple thing it's just about eating but at a deeper level it's about how one does it um and the world actually tells us just the opposite right the culture around us right and even at that time would have told that you you do it you do things in your own way we hear these things right that uh i'd like to do things my way right it's my life right we we hear that in songs we hear that in in books um and and for those of you who uh who like listening to music uh, you know there's this famous frank sinatra song i did it my way 
and i was just uh, reading up about that and it seems that frank sinatra ended up hating that song because everybody would uh, just attach that one song to him and he didn't towards the it was somebody else had written that song it became so famous that everybody would want him to sing it whenever he would do a live concert and by the end of his life he was like i don't believe in this song right but uh, but that's what you know so sometimes things that you get famous for uh, we got to be careful right uh, it's they stick to you it's difficult to let go of those right so so you know this this whole uh this whole um uh this whole flow or this whole influence of doing things our own way right that it's our life and that we make our choices uh that's something that is around us and that's what satan was trying to uh tell the lord jesus christ that you don't need to follow god's method you can choose to do it yourself and in jesus's response like i said uh he goes to the heart of the problem of course in all three instances jesus starts by saying it is written and that's so beautiful the way that jesus quotes from the scripture and find interestingly he's quoting from the same section right which is uh the wilderness uh, experience of the israelites so we can assume that in that time that jesus was fasting there this would perhaps been something that jesus was meditating on right just like us you know when we do our quiet time and then during the day uh something comes to us right some kind of a temptation the lord reminds us from god's word right if we hide god's word in our heart then uh we will be protected from sinning against god as the psalmist says so the lord jesus christ is quoting from deuteronomy chapter 8 and he says it is written man does not live on bread alone and then matthew adds the rest of the verse but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god right so to just understand the context of this a little bit can we turn to deuteronomy chapter 8 deuteronomy chapter 8 and we'll read uh, verse 2 and 3 remember how the lord your god led you all the way in the desert these 40 years right and we'll see the parallels uh between uh, Jesus's 40 days and the 40 year experience of Israel so he says why did he do it to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart you see the we we see a glimpse of why god allows tests in our lives james says that god does not tempt but he does allow tests to come into our lives and why is that in order to know what was in your heart and that's exactly what the lord jesus christ was also experiencing right it was more a heart issue whether or not you would keep his commands and then it says he humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna so god allowed israelites to go through that experience that period of hunger just like the lord jesus christ here and then feeding them with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known why was it to teach you and this is the portion that jesus then quotes that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the lord what was jesus trying to say what was the context right the context is that jesus is trying to say that you don't live just with, with the physical food that you get right but you live because god is taking care of you because god is permitting because god is letting you live now the israelites had enough food right god gave them manna god provided for them in a way that they had never imagined food that fell from heaven but even in that they had to trust god every day because it was just right for that day they could not store it for the next day God was teaching them that I am the one who sustains you it's not just this food I am the one who sustains you and gives you life but still at the end of it they also died right they died because they failed the test that God had placed before them but here we see Jesus he passes this this test of trusting in God trusting in God's provision right so so that is really the crux of what jesus is telling uh in his response to satan as he quotes scripture as he takes out the sword of the spirit 
and he and and the sword is actually when when we see uh, Ephesians chapter six, it is an offensive. Weapon. So Jesus is not here on the defensive, you know, just um, uh, you know, shaking away the darts of of the devil. But he is already prepared. He he has been prepared since the time that he was a child, right? With the word, we saw that when Jesus was in the temple, he was already ready with the word of God. We see him in these forty days. Also, he's been preparing. So he's ready. He's ready with the sword uh, of the Spirit, which is God's word, and he is uh, responding. Uh, to Satan, right? Submitting to God, and he is resisting the devil here. So, trusting in God's provision. At another passage in John chapter four, uh, Jesus also says in verse thirty-four, "My food is to do the will of Him who sent me." So, Jesus is saying that obedience is more important. I believe and I trust that God will take care of my needs, and God did. Right at the end of this passage, we see in Matthew chapter four that Jesus, God sent the angels to minister unto him. So, if you were to just think about how this applies into our lives, right? The material things, the food, clothing, uh, uh, a place to live, uh, money to su- survive, right? Our emotional needs, our sexual needs, right? These are all natural, basic needs that God has. given us right these are things that god has given to all humans and by themselves they are not sinful just like by itself having that bread was not sinful for the lord jesus christ but doing it in a way that is outside god's plan that is outside god's method that is what makes it sinful so we got to really think when we go about doing things which are normal natural right things that seem okay on the outside in all of these areas that i was talking about basic human needs are we doing it god's way or are we doing it my way the world is saying do it your way it doesn't matter you're not hurting anyone else right it's your money it's your life it's your body so long as you don't hurt anyone else that's the new humanistic philosophy right so long as you're good to other people you live the way that you want but the bible completely in an antithesis is saying completely countercultural no it's not your life your life belongs to the one who made you and you got to live it his way trust in god's plan and in god's provision so that we can fight uh, these temptations right we sh- we should understand that it's a battle for our heart it's not just a battle for the outward actions right there is a cosmic battle for the ownership of our souls the second one that we see then is the temptation uh which on the outside seems to be a temptation for position okay i'm doing something wrong yeah on the outside uh, verse 5 to 8 it seems to be a temptation for position for power for authority for fame and recognition right and it seems that it is something which is uh to get what is rightfully the lord jesus christ what does it say there from verse 5 to 8 of luke chapter 4 the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and he said to him i will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and i can give it to anyone i want to you see the uh, the scheming of the devil he he's mixing truth with lies yes the devil has been called the god of the ages uh, but and the ruler of the world but he definitely does not have authority in a way that he can give it to someone else in fact he has been allowed and given permission by god uh, for a temporary period of time but he says i can give it to anyone i want to and then catch so if you worship me it will all be yours so on the outside what the devil is actually telling the lord jesus christ is he's giving him access to something that is rightfully the lord jesus christ anyway in fact it was promised right from the beginning the devil knows that the devil maybe has read the bible more than we have right so all the old testament scriptures he knows very well he knows that this is the promise for the messiah and we also see that the lord jesus christ got it eventually right again in philippians uh, chapter 2 we read that god has placed him at the highest place and given him a name that is above every other name so the lord jesus christ got that position and authority finally but what is the devil telling him here take a quick route 
do it faster. What is the need to wait? He's saying, he's telling Jesus that hasn't it been long enough? 30 years of obscurity, 30 years of staying in a place that nobody cares about, a small town called Nazareth, 30 years of doing, uh, you know, odd jobs in your father's carpentry shop, just making chairs and tables. Who cares about all of these things? Why don't you take the place that is rightfully yours? And in that process, the devil is saying, take a shortcut. But there is a catch. What is the catch? The catch is that you got to make a compromise, right? Worship me. So to hurry and not wait for God's timing, that's really what the devil is uh, saying here. And that is the real heart issue. And we see that again in Jesus' response. All three of Jesus' response, they go to the heart issue. They don't stay at the surface level of what the devil is actually asking him to do. But he goes into the actual issue of the heart that is uh, hidden uh, in that particular temptation. So what does, what does Jesus say? He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. How is it related to what the devil is saying? Because he's saying that impatient ambition for the right things, for things that are actually yours, but being impatient about it is actually deep down an issue of who is the Lord of your life? Who do you worship? Who do you serve on a daily basis in every area of your life? That is actually the real issue. So it's not just about uh, you know, getting what is rightfully yours. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. If we just read from verse 10 to 14, we'll get the context. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 to 14. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers. Right. So this is at the end of the 40 years of wilderness journey. Moses is telling this, uh, to the people of Israel. When God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land which is large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and this is the part that Jesus quotes. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Fear the Lord your God. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here the people of Israel are ready to become turned from slaves all of these years into rulers finally. right? To get the place and, and get the position that was rightfully theirs because God had promised it for them. But Moses is giving them a warning and Jesus quotes from that warning. In all of this, if your hearts go away from the Lord, you will completely miss it. Right? Don't take shortcuts. Jesus, we see, he is victorious over this. Right? He keeps saying, even later on in the Gospels, that my time has not yet come. We see him waiting for God's timing. For all the things that were right, but he was waiting for God's timing. So doing things in God's method and doing things in God's time or waiting for God's time. Just for us to think about, you know, uh, before we look at the third one, right? That what does God really want? God wants lordship over our hearts. Not just in one time of confession where we say that God, you're the Lord of my life, I receive you as my savior. Not just that, but in every day, in every area of our life, God wants to be the Lord. He deserves to be the Lord of our lives. So let us not hurry to get things done for ourselves. All the right things, you know, things about career, things about marriage, things about our plans and our desires for our children, all right things. But let's not hurry to get things done for ourselves. Because uh, just like we have to use God's methods, we've got to wait for God's timings as well. A lot of times in our hurry to get the right things, we end up making compromises. And those compromises are actually what? They're worshipping Satan. We might think it's just one little lie. That's okay. You know, it's just one bill that is forged. It's okay. Yeah, today's the last day, by the way, of filing your taxes, right? It's just one little bill. I mean... Like the government already has enough, right? What are they doing with it? Look at the road in front of my house, right? Um, it's okay, 
Yeah? Um, just saying a little thing, giving a little bribe, right? Doing things slightly differently to get to to get things done faster. The right things done faster. Yeah? It's worshipping Satan. It's not just a little uh, detour. It is actually worshipping Satan. Something for all of us to think about. And then finally, uh, yeah, so, so what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying that worship God and serve Him and He will lift you up at the right time. The third temptation is one which on the outside seems to be of God's promises. It says, in verse, uh, from verse 9 onwards, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If or since you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here. And then the devil quotes scripture. I was telling you, the devil knows a lot of times scripture much, uh, much better than us. And he's quoting here from Psalm 91, which is interestingly a messianic psalm. Right? So, the, so the devil knows that this is something that the Lord Jesus knows is about him. And he says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He doesn't misquote. He quotes the right verse, but it's in completely wrong context. The meaning that he puts into it is completely wrong. And Jesus answers, it's, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So on the outside, it's just something about claiming God's promises. It's there. It's quoted. I'm quoting from that and I'm saying that God, haven't you said, can't you do this for me? Shouldn't you do this for me? But in Jesus' response, we understand that the heart issue is deeper. It is twisting God's word to whatever suits me, right? To whatever I think uh, I need, you know, so the devil is actually... Uh, asking Jesus to, to take God's word and claim something which is completely not right. Again, just like he had done with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he asked them, did God really say that? Right? Did God really say that you can't eat all the fruits of the garden? Well, God did not say that, so the right answer to that question was no. Yeah? But God had said something else, which is the part that the devil had completely twisted. So just like that here as well, the promise that was given in Psalm 91 wasn't something that the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, he knew that the Lord Jesus Christ said that, you know, that's not something that I can take and then put God to test by throwing myself off this uh, high point and saying that therefore God will protect me. Yeah, Doing things in a way and, and saying that, you know, God has promised that he will take care of me. Now that's something that we got to think about. Uh, and the context that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, picks from uh, is from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. You know, we will not go, go through it because we also have to read Exodus chapter 17 to see what that incident was when the people of Israel, they uh, went and they were really troubled uh, Moses, you know, for water. And in Exodus chapter 17 verse 7, uh, the Lord uh, speaks about the intent of the heart there and he says that they tested the Lord. It wasn't that they were just asking for water. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What are they really saying? That if God has said that he will provide, why is he not providing? Right. So that was the real thing that we see there in Masa and Meribah, right? which is uh, a, a, you know, words for testing and quarreling. And in that place, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says that do not put the Lord your God to test. When we twist God's word for our own purposes, we are actually testing God. We are challenging him without trying to really understand what he is meaning to say, without really trying to understand his promises. Uh, you know, we will end up twisting uh, what he means and misapplying it into our lives and challenging God. So are you and I reading and understanding God's word with the right intentions? That's something for uh, us to think about as an application from this particular one. And sadly, uh, many and, and you know even I have done it, uh, quoting verses completely out of context because we want to claim promises that suit us without really putting an effort to understand what is the context, what does that 
truly mean. And many times people also shower these promises on others. You know, God will never do this for you or God will always do this for you, right? Uh, and sometimes in WhatsApp groups, you know, those type of things keep coming. If you say that, okay, I'm not unwell. Oh, this will never happen to you. Uh, you know, because God will never let this happen to you. Just uh, picking on verses here and there uh, without understanding the full meaning or context. So, so we got to be very Careful, if we are just snacking on God's word, picking a little here, picking a little there, it is dangerous, right? But we got to study God's word properly and systematically and not just as motivational quotes to use, uh, uh, you know, at our own uh, disposal, right? Uh, so be careful, we got to be careful which are the sources from where we are getting God's word, if our theology is coming from the wrong sources, from, from five-minute quick YouTube sermons, you know, uh, from people who don't have any credentials or it's coming from, um, uh, you know, songs sometimes. Our theology ends up coming from songs and we assume that, yes, there might be a verse somewhere about that, right? Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's very, very dangerous. In fact, in Second Timothy, and, and this is important, so I'd like us to read this. In Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, there is a... A very strong warning given for this. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. It says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So Paul is saying, I give you this charge to Timothy. What is he saying? Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Listen to this, verse 3. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say, what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Keep your head in all situations. Not just things that we feel uh, are good to listen to. So categorically when we just see all of these together, right? These are temptations that we face as well. Those specific ones about, uh, you know, turning stone into bread uh, or of, uh, uh, you know, having authority over all kingdoms or jumping off, uh, uh, you know, a high point are not things that may come to us, right? But the deeper issues are all temptations that Satan brings before us. So we got to be aware of Satan's strategy. What does he do? He will attack many times after high points in life. You know, when we feel we are on a spiritual high, when we feel that things are going well, many times immediately after that, Satan will attack to bring us down. He will also attack us when we are physically, emotionally weak and alone. When we are isolated, right? When we are feeling drained out, also Satan will attack, right? So it's important to know these things so that we can be more alert and aware during those times. And Satan works through deception, what he says is not what it really is, right? And of course, we can't hear Satan say. So the things around us, the things that are coming to us, many times have actually got deeper uh, agendas hidden and we got to be careful about that. But praise God that our Savior is a victor over sin and Satan. And therefore, he is a model for us to follow, right? Not only is he sympathetic because of that, but he's also our forerunner, right? He's the author, the finisher of our faith and we can look unto Jesus because he has gone ahead of us and he's experienced all of these things and we can learn from him. So the question that we started with, is Jesus the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world? If he had to be that, he needed to be spotless. He needed to have conquered sin and Satan and the answer is yes, he is. Is Jesus worthy of worship? Because only God, a sinless holy God is worthy of worship. And the answer is, yes, he is worthy of worship. If Jesus had fallen to the temptations of Satan, salvation would have been impossible. But like we read in Hebrews chapter, four, uh, chapter 2 and verse 14, he has rendered powerless those uh, him who had or Satan who had the power of death and he has delivered those who were subject to slavery all of their lives. He has delivered us uh, by conquering sin and death. Jesus, the only person who is sinless in all of 
humanity and therefore the only person who is worthy of being our master of being our lord of being the guru of our lives right so if there is anyone here who is still seeking and searching who do i follow right luke and god's word is presenting the lord jesus christ the sinless lamb of god the only one who can take away the sins of humanity and the only one who is worthy of worship and worthy to be followed so may we follow the example of the lord jesus christ by trusting god's love and provision not questioning that even when we go through wants and needs in life basic wants and need but trust god's love and provision trust god's plan and timing things may seem that they are taking more than they ought to right more time than it ought to things which are rightfully ours right it's it's taking more time trust god's plan and timing don't take shortcuts because shortcuts a lot of times will mean that you'll end up worshiping satan or bowing down before his methods and finally be rooted in god's word three times the lord jesus christ quoted from the scripture from the same portion he was meditating on that meditate on god's word and god will use that uh, to help us like the psalmist said by hiding god's word in our heart uh, we will be able to fight sin so satan tempts us in everyday situations right what seems like just taking care of provision in our lives what seems like just taking care of or going after position and what is rightfully ours and what seems as just claiming god's promises from his words many times are things which have a deeper hidden thing that satan wants us to go against god so may god help us that we would be people who would truly understand uh what uh not just what we are doing on the outside but why we are doing it judge our own motivations and like david says search my heart o lord right and if there is something anything within me right not on the outside but on the inside which is not right lord please show me that may that be our prayer and may christ be our example christ who suffered leaving an example for us to follow in his steps and that same passage goes on to say he committed no sin that is the example for us to follow may the lord help us and uh, uh, as we end we will just sing a song 448 yield not to temptation shall we all rise and sing this song and may god help us that we'll sing it as a prayer that god would help us to uh, not yield to temptation to look at jesus who is an example for us right who suffered uh, in every way uh, giving an example that we can follow in his steps to be able to uh, fight against temptation and to conquer that may god help us